Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Oh, good morning, everybody. My name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic. First and foremost, or I'll, I will forget, I need to thank um, Doug and the committee and anyone else responsible for putting on this wonderful event. I say we give them a big round of applause this morning. I have had the gift and the privilege of helping put on a conference or something like that, and what I know to be true is there's a whole lot of people that are behind the scenes at an event like this, and I really want to thank them because they are the ones that are doing it from such a place of beautiful humility and service work. It's just amazing. There's a million volunteers go into a program like this. So I would like to thank Tina for being a beautiful, wonderful hostess for me this weekend. It's been absolutely delightful. Um, and Judy, I don't know where Judy is. I promised her I would tell this little story this morning. Um, she makes these beautiful little flowers, right, these beautiful corsages. Well, when Doug showed me to my room when I arrived here on Friday, he pointed it out, and it was in this nice little bag with a nice little note on it. And I thought, oh, how sweet, but I don't speak until Sunday morning. How am I going to keep this fresh and nice and beautiful? So I go, I find my ice bucket, I go out into the ice bucket, and I fill it up, and I bring it in, and I take this little bit flower in this little baggie, and I pack it in the ice like it's my firstborn child, and their life depends on it, right? And I'm tucking it in, and I'm making sure everything's okay. So not only do I do it on Friday when I arrive, well, you know, Friday night, the ice has begun to melt, I need to replace it. Saturday morning, the ice has melted, I need to replace it. Sunday afternoon, the ice has melted, I need to replace it. Sunday morning, I get up, the ice is melted, I figure I got a couple hours, I'm good to go, right? I go to put my corsage on, and to ruin any delusion that speakers have it all together, it's artificial. <laughs> So that should tell you, Diane, maybe I need Alan on. Can I get your number? Yeah. I will, I will take care of something to the point, you know, where it couldn't die even if it was alive. So I'm just, I've had a really great time. Um, the speakers have, gosh, knocked it out of the park this weekend, right? I, um, yeah. And I truly would like to thank each and every one of them for creating what I believe is a sacred space where the solution lives that I'm now allowed to step into. So thank you very much. Um, Kent, I've known Kent for years, and he never disappoints, and he gets, he touches your heart. And, you know, it was Gene and Dee, the Al-Anon speaker. I'm not sure if he made it back here this morning, but I'm pretty sure I was married to both of you, so we can talk <laughs> afterwards. Um, you know, the number's so high, it's a little vague. So it's, um, but your stories kind of led to that. And, and I told Pat last night, I said, oh, my God, you are my hero. And, you know, you would think it's because she's 37 years sober. And it's, no, it's because she had the entrepreneurial spirit. She actually got paid to take her clothes off in public. So, you know, I was like, yeah, um, you're my hero. And so 
So hopefully, with all of that said, I have broken every delusion you might have about the Sunday morning spiritual speaker. Are we good now? Are we good that I can tell my real story? Um, I always, you know, they were talking something about being the spiritual speaker. I'm like, listen, my yoga mat's dirty, and if you back me in a corner, so is my mouth. Um, my meditation mat has coffee stains on it because I believe God does not mind if I drink coffee while we hang out. You know, I think He's good with that. So. It's, you know, that's just who I am, but what I have is a very tangible spiritual life. I have something that has depth and weight and meat, and that's something I never thought that I would have. I stand here before you today, and I'm unapologetically delighted to be here. And it's not that I want to hear my story. I'm really incredibly bored with it. Um, I always think, I can make stuff up. These people don't know me. But I'm convinced, if I was live from behind this podium, that not unlike Kent, one of these ceiling tiles would open up, but it would not be the police. It would be my grand sponsor, Polly, and she'd be right there going, liar! You know, and it would just... <laughs> You know, I have stayed sober on fear. Anybody else in here? You know, I mean, it's just the truth of it. It's, it has not always been virtue. I'm not that girl. It has been fear. Um, but I am unapologetically delighted to be here for a couple reasons. And the first one is, is I try to the best of my ability to follow the disciplines in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So each and every morning, I surrender my life to a higher power. And what I believe in that moment happens is that anything that happens in the next 24 hours or until I go to bed, whichever comes first, and we don't always know which is, um, and that is a divine assignment laid out by the God of my understanding. So the fact that I'm here, it's not about me. It's not because I did anything. It's literally a divine assignment. But there's another reason that's equally important, if not more important than that, and that is a woman that lived like I did, that did the things that I did, that ran with the people I ran with, she doesn't wind up in a beautiful conference, in a beautiful hotel like this, on a Sunday morning in Ames, Iowa, that people, where people have been nothing but loving, kind, and gracious to her all weekend. She winds up in an unmarked grave somewhere, and absolutely no one is looking for her anymore because she's burned all of her bridges. That is the woman that I was when I was out there. But instead, today, I stand here in front of you, and I have been rocketed on more than one occasion to that fourth dimension of existence. I am living a life that is more rich and more valuable than anything I could have ever dreamed of. And I want you to know, if you're sitting in here, I'm not the Maserati girl, okay? I am not the girl that came in and now has the half a million dollar house and the Maserati and all that kind of stuff. That's not me. But the riches that I have today are the things that money can't buy and that I never, ever believed I could have. In fact, I cursed you for when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you told me at my first meeting, Chris, you can have a life beyond your wildest dreams. And silently I said, no, I can't. You don't know me. You don't know a woman like me. The best it will ever get is tolerable. And here I stand in front of you a few short 24 hours later, and I have all those riches. Because, see, when I laid my head down last night in the hotel room, I had perfect peace and ease. When I got up this morning, I knew where I was. I knew who I was with. I knew where I was going. I didn't have all the guilt, shame, and remorse that I've had in the past. You know, I am blessed with a life that is truly, truly beyond my wildest dreams. And that entire journey, you know, it started 
by an act of grace and love of a higher power than I walked when I walked in here to all of you on October 29th of 1994, I didn't even believe in. And that's not to say that I have 20 years of knowledge. It's not telling you I have 20 years of wisdom. The only thing I'm going to share with you this morning is I have 20 years of experience in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am very transparent behind the podium. And you're not, like I said, I'm not the Maserati girl. The 20 years of experience that I'm going to share with you, I really hope that what comes through is the power of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the love and forgiveness of the God that I discovered in Alcoholics Anonymous, the absolute unbelievable passion in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. But what will also come through from my story is that not only have I seen the power of all of those things, I have seen the power of self-will run riot while taking up a seat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have seen what happens personally with the reemergence of self while being an active member in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that is exactly who I am. And the frightening thing about that is, is that for an alcoholic of my type, that's how a spree starts. It's the reemergence of self. And if you don't understand why self is so important, and I'm not talking about alcohol, kind of like Kent said, I hope to encourage you to read the book. Because there is a part in step three, we often talk about step three as just a decision, but what they don't tell you is it's the most important decision you're ever going to make in your entire life. It's more important than that job. It's more important than that her. It's more important than that him. It's even more important than that child. And what it tells us in step three is what the root of our problem is, is selfishness and self-centeredness. That is the root of my problem. You see, alcohol treats that root. I'm the director of a botanical garden back home, and I understand that concept. Because if you do not get rid of the root, the invasive species will continue to grow, and it will destroy everything that is beautiful around you. And that is like we have to find out where the root is, what it is, and what particular substance to use to get rid of that root, or it will destroy all of our other hard work. You know, and I've learned the same thing to hold true in Alcoholics Anonymous. But like I said, I have had that moment, and I'm very honest behind the podium, and there's a reason that I am. And one of the reasons is, is that at 10 years sober, I'm sitting in one of these seats, and I'm sitting in a conference just like this, and I am literally dying of untreated alcoholism and have not had a drink in 10 years. I don't hear anybody from the behind the podium or in casual conversations at 10 years, 15 years, 20 years talking about the fact that they're dying and they haven't had a drink in years. And I'm thinking I'm the only one, and I'm thinking I'm the only one that that has happened to. And what I have found to be true now is I've been blessed with incredible strong sponsorship. I believe that I come from one of the lines of strongest female sponsorship in Alcoholics Anonymous today is those women, they talk about it. They talk about what happens when self reemerges. They talk about what happens when the job gets in the way, when the him gets in the way, when the stuff gets in the way. They talk about all that, and they talk about what to do about it. And what my personal story is, is um, the last time that one such situation happened, I had everything. You know, I had it all. It looked all perfect. Everything looked great. I had the love of my life in my life. I had this amazing job that I was working. I had all these things that were going on. I'm active. I'm of service. da 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 You know, wonderful family relationships, everything. I am face down 
on a chestnut wood floor in my office with my hand behind my back screaming uncle because I can't figure out what's going on. I can't figure out why the happy, joyous, and free is slipping away from me one more time. But you guys taught me well. You taught me in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I had but two choices. I was going to be willing to go to any lengths or I was going to die. And fortunately, I had never forgotten that. And fortunately, I was understanding the disease of alcoholism is not just about drinking. It's not just about drinking. And so what happened was somebody handed me a set of CDs. And I would like to thank the gentlemen that do the CDs because they do a life-saving, life-changing service. Okay, so I just would like to thank them. And what happened to me was somebody, I was in this space and somebody handed me a set of CDs and as my higher power would have it, they said, I think, you know, she might have something you need to hear. And what happened is I listened to Katie P. from Austin, Texas. And she talked about it 17 years away from her last drink, dying of untreated alcoholism in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I did what you guys taught me to do, and I stalker called her, okay? There is a network in AA. We can find you, okay? Let's just say that, you know? And I had like three phone calls out. I had this woman's private cell phone number, you know? It's what we do. And so I called her, and I called her, and I called her. And she finally called me back, and she said, I, I knew one of two things. You're either crazy or desperate, and either way, I think we can do something here, you know? And it was great. And what I can tell you is that when you're willing to go to any length, things can happen. I had never met Katie. I had no idea who she was. I just heard her on a set of CDs. As I said, she lives in Austin, Texas. And within two weeks, we had walked through all 12 steps at a depth I had never walked them through in my life, including making amends, doing all of that service, and what happened to me is I was rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence such as I have never known, and it has not left me since. And what has happened to me now is because I share that story from behind the podium, is a lot of the women that I wind up sponsoring are 5, 10, 15 years sober sitting in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous dying because I'm willing to talk about it. And I don't look at myself as some evangelist or some person that's going out to change the world. I am nothing but a torchbearer. Because what happened was Katie carried the message to me through the phone line because I had a desperation willing to do anything. There were times when she would say to me, I'm traveling, the only time I can talk to you is at midnight. I'd set my alarm for midnight in Ohio to get up and talk to her. She'd tell me, I can only talk to you at 9.30 in the morning. I would take my lunch break from work at 9.30 in the morning when I just got there at 8. You know, I just did what I needed to do. She carried the message to me. It lit me up. She lit up my torch. And now my job in Alcoholics Anonymous is to look for those women that are dying of untreated alcoholism. And I know the ones, man, they're sitting in a room and somebody, you know, like Pat or somebody like Jean's up here talking or Kent and they're really funny. And they're the ones sitting in the back of the room going, <laughs> they are not going to smile for anything because there's nothing to smile about. And so what I do is I hunt you down, okay? I don't believe the lie that we hear in Alcoholics Anonymous that says if you want what we have, you'll come to us. Our fellowship was not founded on that. Our fellowship was founded on people going out, helping other people, looking for the sick ones. 
And that's how I can become a part of, too, at a conference like this. I look for the woman sitting in the corner miserable. She's my favorite because we can do something with her, you know? And so what I do is I just take my little torch and I go over to her and it's my responsibility not to tout about how great I am and how great I'm doing. My responsibility is to take my torch, climb deep down into the dark hole that she is curled up in, tight in a ball, afraid of everything, so full of self, she can't even, her eyes can't even see out. I climb into that hole, I take her by the hand, and one step at a time, we climb out of that hole, shoulder to shoulder, with a common problem, a common solution on a common journey. And after the 12 steps, we are able to stand together in the sunlight of the Spirit. That is my job in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's real simple. And that's why I'm here this morning with all of you. You know, and what I will tell you, as honored as I am to be behind this podium, for me, this is not the real service in Alcoholics Anonymous. The real service is at 3 o'clock in the morning. Am I willing to suit up and show up then? Am I willing to grab my torch then and climb down in the hole with somebody when nobody's looking? Am I willing to do the deal when there is nothing in it for me? Except for maybe another day of sobriety. Seems like a pretty good deal to me. And then sometimes the real service in AA, it seems like it has something to do with AA, but not really. And you just kind of, and it winds up being one of the biggest changes in my recovery. And I'm going to share that with you now. And it was a few years ago now. Somebody asked me to go lead in a meeting in Columbus, Ohio on May 4th. And the reason May 4th is so important is that is my father's birthday. And when I had done multiple inventories with all of you, I'm a multiple inventory kind of person. I'm not a one and you're done kind of person. Um, after multiple inventories, I had seen that my father had been harmed the greatest by the disease of alcoholism in my life. I made a direct amends to him, but I also had a living amends to make to him. And one of the things that I did was I had found out that he was the youngest of four children. He had grown up during the Depression, and he had never had a birthday party. So May 4th was his birthday. Every year I'd do something for my daddy. One year we, um, I'd load him in the car. I didn't have any money. So I loaded him in my car and I took shoe polish and I painted on the window of the car, honk, I'm 88. And, and we drove around the 270 outer belt of Columbus, Ohio with my dad waving his arm out the window and truckers going, ah, ah, you know, and here's my dad. <laughs> Poor old guy couldn't, like, move his arm for two weeks, but he was delighted. Um, well, this particular year, he asked me to come share on my dad's birthday. I said, I never say no to Alcoholics Anonymous, but this is different. See, our book also says that a spiritual life that does not include one's family obligations may not be so perfect after all. So I have to keep that in mind as well. So what I did is, I, you know, I told you, I said, um, my dad's in first stage of Alzheimer's. I need to wait until he has a lucid moment to ask him if this is okay. Can I call you back? He said, of course. That's exactly what I did. Got dad on the phone. And I said, dad, somebody wants me to come share on your birthday, but I want to do what it is you want to do. See, my daddy loved Alcoholics Anonymous. His wife, my mother, had died from the DTs in Riverside Hospital in 1998. My dad loved what he saw you were doing to all of me. And so without missing a beat, my dad said into the phone, well, honey, how about dinner and a meeting for my birthday? I said, all right, that sounds great, Dad. And so I loaded him in the car, took him out to dinner, and we went into the meeting. Apparently, those people in Columbus had read the same big book that I read that said, you not only show up for the alcoholic, but you show up for their family. 
we walked in and all of you, there was one person that knew about my dad and all of you had bought my dad a sheet cake this big that said happy birthday Phil on it. There were birthday cups, there were birthday plates, there were birthday napkins, there were birthday hats, there were birthday horns. It was like, we even do birthdays alcoholically, right? It was like, wow. My dad walked into that meeting and instantly he was five and he went, And the man was in his 90s, and you made his whole world. And then it happened. I don't know what it is about alcoholic women and really old men. (laughs) And you ladies, and I use that term very loosely at this moment. (laughs) You walk up to my father in your too tight blue jeans and your too low cut shirt and you wrap your little slithering bodies around him (laughs) and in your best little Marilyn Monroe voice you go happy birthday Phil and I'm like oh that is my dad I mean I was so creeped out I was five you know it was like oh yeah So eventually the meeting started. Um, I shared my story. My dad had never heard my story before. And the one woman that knew me in that meeting, she went over to my dad at the end of the meeting. She said, well, Phil, what do you think of your shiny little penny now? (laughs) And my dad looked at her and once again, without missing a beat, he said, Penny, hell, that girl's a quarter. And I'm like, yes! Yeah, because I knew how much a quarter was worth in the Depression. I, in that moment, was. Bill Wilson. I had arrived, you know, it was, I saw that healing taking place. And as if that wasn't enough, that moment would have been enough, but I'm going to fast forward you to two years later. It's May 4th, my dad's birthday, except for I can't be with him this year. He has since lost his battle with Alzheimer's and has crossed over. I'm sitting at my home group. I'm feeling sad because I'm a human being, but I do have some peace because I am a spiritual being, thanks to all of you. I'm thinking about my dad and how much he loved Alcoholics Anonymous and how much I could wish he could be there. I had kicked off my shoes at some point during the meeting, and the meeting's wrapping up. I got to slide them back on, and I slide my foot in my shoe, and I feel something. Now, the way my alcoholic mind still works to this day, my first thought is, oh, my God, a poisonous spider has climbed into my shoe. It's going to bite the bottom of my foot, and I will be dead in two hours, okay? Within 10 seconds, I'm picking out caskets. That's how the head still works. But y'all have taught me, don't listen to her. She lied. So instead, I quietly reach down and pick up my shoe. And what I pull out, two years to the exact day, two years to the exact hour, and quite possibly two years to the exact minute, was this. And if you can't see it, it was the shiniest quarter I had ever laid eyes on. Now, you can tell me how a quarter jumped out of the little A&A basket, underneath the table, into the toe of my little pointy shoe. You can come up with your story, but I can tell you exactly how it got there. It got there through the grace and the power of a higher power that when I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, there was nothing any one of you could have done to prove to me that that power existed. And now a few short 24 hours later, there's nothing any one of you can do to prove to me that that power doesn't exist. 
Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. I owe you my life. I owe you my family's life. I owe you everything that is good, right, and true inside of me. But the truth is, that is not the woman that walked in here to all of you. The woman that walked in here to all of you, you know, I had no idea. I was a real alcoholic. And I had no understanding that consumption of liquor was not my problem. It was just a symptom of what was wrong with me. And my main problem centered in my mind. But what I can tell you through doing the work and looking back, is that for as long as I can remember, I had a crazy mind that was doing me in. I had this crazy mind that was always telling me, you're not enough. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not tall enough. I have like five-inch heels on just so I can see over the podium in case anyway. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. Um, they made me do a test run to see if I could see over the podium on Friday. I'm not kidding you. I'm up here going, yeah. Um, but I always thought I was not enough. No matter what I saw in you, couldn't measure up. And then this other voice would come in. I'd be like, what do you mean you're not enough? You're too much. They're always telling you, you're too loud. You're too rowdy. You're too desperate. You're too needy. You're too emotional. You're too angry. You're too violent. You're too bitter. I don't remember him saying you're too nice. <laughs> but somebody may have said that. See, an alcoholic of my type, we don't retain that. It's what my friend Ed M., who's in the big meeting in the sky now, always called the 299 to 1 theory. 300 people in this room, 299 of you come up to me afterwards and say, I love you, Chris. I'm so glad you were here. Can we stay connected? One of you comes up and says, I don't like your shoes. <laughs> Guess who now owns my life, right? Guess who I'm thinking about morning, noon, and night? Guess who I'm having conversations with at 3 a.m. that you do not have the ability to be at? Mm-hmm. And in about six weeks, I'm back in Ames, Iowa, making amends to you for all the things I've been saying about you back in Ohio. Um, <laughs> at that point in my life, too, I could walk into a room full of people. I literally had this delusion that believed I could look you in the eyes, read your mind, and I knew what you were thinking about me. Okay? And I knew that what you were thinking about me wasn't nice, but you didn't know that I knew what you were thinking about me wasn't nice, because I walked into a room looking a lot like my daddy with Alzheimer's. I'd walk in going... Hi, how's it going? Yeah, I'm great. I'm fine. Everything's wonderful. Yeah, everything's good. And it wasn't that there was anything happy, joyous, and free inside of me. It was that somewhere along the lines, I got this idea, if you saw how dark and how black and how broken it was inside of me, if you saw that big old hole where the rest of you seemed to have a soul, if you saw that, you'd recoil in horror and you'd run right out that door. And see, there was only one thing worse to me in my life than being in a room with all of you and what you're thinking about me. And that's being in a room alone with me and what I'm thinking about me. Because what you think about me might be mean, but what I think about me is absolutely lethal. But at 14 years old, all that changed. 14, I had my first experience with as much alcohol as I could put into my system. I had had some experiences with alcohol before that, 11, 12 years old. I ran around with five other girls in Columbus, Ohio. We'd con somebody into buying us a six-pack. You do the math. We each had a beer. But I had the keen alcoholic mind at 11 years old. I had this girlfriend who sounded a lot like Pat. Got very friendly at an early age. Um, and so what I would do was I would find some poor unsuspecting guy like Gene. Um, and he would be over in the corner. And I would run over to him. And I'd go, hey, Gene, 
Jerry thinks you're cute. Now, Jerry hasn't said a thing about Jean yet, but Jean's delighted because Jean knows Jerry's reputation, right? And so then I run over to Jerry and I'm like, Jerry, Jean thinks you're cute. And that's all it took for Jerry. So, you know, she was up and gone, you know, and then they would scurry off into the closet and do whatever it is tweeners do, you know, and I would drink the rest of their beer. So the truth is, at 11 years old, I'm pimping out my girlfriends for alcohol. That is your Sunday morning spiritual speaker. Who knew those things weren't appropriate? Not me. Um, but what happened to me at 14, I finally had as much as you know, I could take into my system. And what happened to me that night is I found the higher power I didn't even know I was looking for. What happened to me that night is the not enough became just enough, and for the first time ever I could look you in the eyes. The too much came down to just enough, and I could look you in the eyes. What happened to me that night is alcohol had the power to do for me what I was unable to do for myself. Alcohol had the power to change my perception of me. And when my perception of me changed, then my perception of you changed. And when my perception of me and you changed, all was right with my world, and I was happy, joyous, and free. And what I did is I went on a 20-year pilgrimage to rediscover the bliss I felt in that moment when everything seemed to work. And if you're an alcoholic of my type, you know exactly what happened. I never could quite get there again. I would almost get to it, but not quite, and then I would leave claw marks in everyone and everything as I slid away from that sensation. Or I would zoom right through that feeling into consequences. I was never a good drinker. You know, I was a girl who drank, got drunk, threw up. Drank, who got drunk, locked up. Drank, who got drunk, you know, it was just never anything good came out of it. I had, you know, I would get up in the morning and I had those near-death experience hangovers, you know, and I was just, that's who I was. But I didn't have a problem with being sick. I didn't have a problem with being in trouble. And I sure didn't have a problem with being in pain. The only problem I had with alcohol is that it wore off. Because when alcohol wore off, all that madness in my head started again. The best way I've ever found to describe what happens in my head, unless it's full of alcohol or Alcoholics Anonymous, is many years ago now, my dad got my son a hamster for Christmas. And I don't know if any of you ever had those back then, but at that time they had little metal cages with little metal wheels, and no matter how much you oil that wheel, it squeaks, right? And I remember watching that hamster, and he gets on that wheel, and they run 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 and they run. And I remember thinking... What an idiot, you know? I mean, he just, he is going nowhere, and look at that, you know? And and I remember thinking, okay, at nightfall, I'll turn off the lights, and the little booger will stop. Well, that's the night that I learned when I turned off the lights that hamsters, just like my alcoholism, are nocturnal little rodents. You put us in the dark, and we come to life, you know? And I turned off the lights, and I throw that little hamster through his arms up in the air and yelled, party! And he jumped back on that wheel and they run 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 and they run. They run all night long in circles and get absolutely nowhere. That is how my head works without either alcohol or Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, but 
what happened to me was um, I started being willing to go to any lengths long before I discovered Alcoholics Anonymous. So any door marked no by society's standards that I thought could, you know, change all of that, I ran to it, threw the door open, jumped in and tried it. Absolutely nothing would give me a permanent effect that alcohol would seem to give me on a temporary basis. I just couldn't find it anywhere. Um, I was at a point in my life where I had ample opportunities to do all kinds of wonderful and amazing things at 17 years old. I was the youngest person ever that had written and produced um, a public service campaign for PBS television in Ohio. I was offered um, an internship at the largest advertising agency in the United States at 17 years old, and it, there was a problem with that. It was an unpaid internship, and I internally at 17 already knew that I was going to be needing some money to keep doing what I was doing. So I turned down the opportunity of a lifetime to keep my job making $2.25 at the local discount store in the shoe department. And then not too long after that, I was offered an opportunity. I had a cousin that saw me burning my life to the ground. He was a corporate attorney for Cincinnati Reds and Boeing Aircraft. He said, come on down to Cincinnati. I'll hook you up. I know you always had interest in the law. We'll get you started. I wasn't in Cincinnati too long before I found out that breaking the law was a lot easier than studying it, and they politely asked me to leave. Um, you know, and I just kept searching for things, and somewhere along the lines, I got this crazy idea that the right relationship would fix me. Now, I'm sure you women in Iowa are smarter than that, right? You just, yeah, you don't do that. I'm, I don't know where I got this idea. I had never been in a healthy relationship. I had never even witnessed a healthy relationship, okay? I told somebody, I think it was Tina yesterday, I said, you shake my family tree and bottles fall out, okay? It's not happy marriages, good relationships. And, yeah, to give you an idea of what my relationships look like at this time, you know, it's Friday night. We've been drinking for a few hours. You know, I have sucked you into the vortex of all of my lies, and we're back at my apartment, and I'm whispering sweet nothings in your ear until I have that personality change the big book talks about. And then before you know what has happened, I am two inches from your nose screaming, I hate you! Get out of here! I don't ever want to see you again! Beep, beep, beep! Those are all the words I am not allowed to use from behind the podium now. Um, let's just say I'm calling you everything but a child of God. And then before your car has backed itself all the way out of the parking place and from in front of my apartment, I have now sprinted out the front door and thrown myself spread eagle superhero style on the hood of your car, and I'm screaming, why are you leaving me? I love you. <laughs> and I can't figure out why y'all kept leaving. <laughs> yeah. Inventory is a beautiful thing, okay? Um... I understand now why you left. Um, I also understand now why, you know, when it was, I think, husband number two, which we may get to that later, but um, when you have to number them, you know that you might be alcoholic. And I said yesterday, only in AA is it perfectly acceptable to go, well, husband number three, you know, to call them by number instead of name. But, um, but it was like, you know, through the inventory process, I was able to see that one time with husband number two and our wonderful 10-month marriage, I get those mini marriages that aren't supposed to count. Um, I think it was maybe Jean that said that or who said it. But it was like a 10-month deal. I understand now why when the police came in, they asked me to leave. I could not understand that. The fact that I am four foot ten and one half inch was so drunk I could barely stand up and was the one wielding the butcher knife might have been it. I don't know, you know, and that's, 
That's who I am. That's who I am when I drink. Um, but I learned some lessons, like I said, through the inventory process. I learned some very important things, that all of those relationships were just a manifestation of my alcoholism. I also learned that we attract what we are, not what we want. And if I wanted something better in my life, it was up to me to change. But the most important thing that I learned is that it would be the right relationship that would fix me. I had just had the wrong partner. See, my number one partner had to be a power greater than human aid. My family of sponsorship, you are not permitted to put the expectation on another human being to fix what is broken inside of you. That is your responsibility, you with your higher power. And my higher power has got a wicked sense of humor because by the time I came to all of you, I'd been married and divorced three times. I was 33 years old. Um, I tried it one more time early in sobriety to see if I was still bad at it. I was. Um, there's a reason that they tell you not to do that early in sobriety, you know, and I, I do not blame him. I blame me because what I brought to the table was the biggest bucket of untreated sick untreated alcoholism, and that's where he was too. You know, there's no blame there. You just have to walk through those experiences and learn from them. But the God of my understanding has a wicked sense of humor because at the botanical garden that I work at, one of my primary job functions all summer long is wedding coordinator. So I always tell him, I can get you to the altar. What happens after that, I have nothing to do with it, okay? No experience there. So, um... But the last guy that I drew into my active alcoholic pit of insanity was a very successful businessman. See, I bought society's lie that said, if you just get the stuff, the him, the house, the car, the things, that'll fix what's broken inside of you, even though I had no idea what it was. That's exactly what I did. We go to these little business cocktail parties. I lovingly now call it my Stepford wife years because I would do what I did today. I'd put on a nice little dress, do my hair, do my makeup, had no idea everything on the outside looked fine, and I'm dying on the inside. I would go under, I'm under the illusion the book talks about that I can drink like a normal person. I'm full of self-centered fear and self-pity because I can't walk into a room full of people and be nothing but one raw nerve. And so I use the only tool that I have in my toolkit, and that's to take a drink. Somebody hands me a little plastic cup. They fill it full of ice cubes. They wave a liquor bottle over the top, and the fumes that fall in, they call it a drink. Okay, that's the only tool I got in my toolkit, so I put that little cup of fumes to my lips, I put it into my system. Unbeknownst to me, I have an allergy to alcohol that kicks off a phenomenon of craving, and before I know it, I'm off and running. All I want to do is fit in, be accepted, be a part of, get my shoulders down from around my ears, be a good wife, and instead what happens to me is I kick off that allergy, and before I know it, I am back in the back room with people doing things I shouldn't be doing. I'm in the parking lot with my husband's partners in business doing things I should not be doing. I disappear completely from events doing things I shouldn't be doing, and my husband has absolutely no idea where I am. You know, I did learn some social graces at one of those events. I learned that if you're full of self-centered fear and self-pity and you crush one of those little plastic cups in your hand and liquor runs down your arm, do you know that normal people find it socially unacceptable when you go like this? <laughs> Who knew, right? I had my finger in my mouth because you got to get what's under the fingernail, right? You know, don't want to miss anything. And that's when I saw him. 
and him's face was bright red, and that vein that you men have in your forehead that we women can make appear on a moment's notice. It looked like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. It was like, bam, 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 you know? And I said my first ever sincere prayer then, and it was, dear God, please let his head explode, because I don't know how to get out of this. That was it. That was what I brought to the table in a relationship, okay? Needless to say, I wasn't invited to any more business cocktail parties, but I'm a good alcoholic, so I got a plan. Not only do I have that illusion our book talks about, I have that delusion that says I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I just manage well. So I go down my list. I got the hem. I got the house. I got the stuff. What could be missing? The only thing I can come up with is a child. So that's exactly what I did, is I get pregnant on purpose to fix what's broken inside of me, and yet I don't even know what that is. I did my best through that nine months to not drink like I typically drink. They laid that little boy into my arm, and I would love to tell you I had that aha moment and my whole world changed. But instead, they laid that little boy into my arms, and I couldn't have told you then in these words, but I can tell you now. I had a visceral knowing at my deepest core that said, oh my gosh, Chris, a baby's shoulders are entirely too tiny to carry the disease of alcoholism on, much less a program of recovery. How are you going to get out of this one? That was my first thought when I received the greatest gift of my life. I went home. I tried to be a good mother. I tried to be a good wife. As I told you, my mother died from this disease. So I had vowed I would not be that mom. I would not do those things. I'm trying not to drink. I'm leaving claw marks in everyone and everybody around me. Do you take alcohol out of my system? I don't get better. I get radically worse if I don't have a sufficient substitute. I get behavior and actions that mirror every psychiatric diagnosis out there. I look insane. That's who I am. And I'm going from one end of the spectrum to the next. My best attempt at not drinking, my best attempt at staying sober without all of you got me locked up in a psychiatric unit under a suicide watch with papers that said I was a threat to myself and all of society, including that little boy that I brought into this world to fix me, and I can no longer even be alone with my own child. That's how well I do without all of you. I was eventually released into my husband's care. He couldn't take living with me very long because I'll tell you what, I don't have a sufficient substitute or I'm sitting in the rooms taking up a seat, not staying in the disciplines. What happens to me is the emergence of self and my character defects rule my life whether I'm drinking or not. And before you know it, I am behind you because you are now my higher power. I am two feet behind you, and I'm like the little guy on the Verizon commercial, and I'm going, can you hear me now? 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 Because I am demanding that you meet my needs. I grew up in a family of he who yelled the loudest one was the rule. So when you don't meet my needs, I don't back away. I get more aggressive and more abrasive. You know, I'm like a little chihuahua, you know? I am tiny, and I'm like, get it, get it, get it. You know, and I'm just, I'm, oh, I just tear you apart, right? And before I know it, one more time, you're pulling out of my driveway, and I'm throwing myself on the hood of your car because I don't understand why you're leaving. For some reason, my husband left that little boy into my care. I'll never understand. What happened to my little boy that day, he watched his daddy pull out of the driveway, and he watched his mama climb right back into the bottle. I can't tell you whether I had a conscious thought that I was going to drink again or not. And if I had, see, I'm a chronic victim when I'm in the throes of my disease. My thought would have gone something like this. See, I was barely drinking, and he still left. Obviously, alcohol is not the problem. He was. Crack it open, pour it down, problem solved. 
But there was one problem with my theory, is I didn't understand the disease of alcoholism. And when it is left untreated, it continues to grow. And when I put alcohol back into my system, I was looking for just a little bit of relief. And instead, what I got was a level of unmanageability such as I had never known. I awakened a beast inside of me that I did not know I had the potential for. I had always been a blackout drinker. I had always been that crazy wild drinker. I had always been all those things. But now I'm dragging a two-year-old child through this disease of alcoholism. I'm trying my best to be a good mother, and I'm completely incapable. I'm trying my best to be a good employee, and I'm completely incapable. You know, I am taking a two-year-old boy, and I'm leaving him places that he shouldn't have been left, with people that he shouldn't be left with. I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. I'm starting out drinking in my home bar in Coshocton, Ohio, and I'm coming to three days later in a tent in Pennsylvania, clueless how I got there. I'm the girl who starts out drinking in her home bar in Shockton, Ohio, and I come to on Ohio State University's campus, and I'm surrounded by people I don't ever remember meeting, and there are guns and knives and weapons on the table, and my last memory is I had my son with me, and I'm clueless at this point where he is. That's where the disease of alcoholism takes me. See, I had lost the power of choice. But what I believe the real crime in alcoholism is, is not that we lose the power of choice. It's that the people that love us lose the power of choice. Because not only did I steal the money out of my kid's piggy bank that can be put back, or the money his grandma had given him, I stole his security. I stole his serenity. I was in the process of stealing his childhood. And I became that woman in the big book that they say has gone beyond recall in a very short time. Thankfully, there was a man in my hometown that didn't believe the lie that is said in Alcoholics Anonymous either that says, if you want what we have, you'll find us. He was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in my town, and he had been watching me. And one day, he saw me on the street, and he handed me his business card. And he said, Chris, I think I know what's wrong with you, and I think I can have some help. If you ever want help, here's my name and phone number. I'll be there for you in a minute. I took his business card, and on the front of it, it had his name and phone number. On the back, it had the crisis hotline. I went home, and in my alcoholic arrogance, I threw it on my kitchen counter and thought, what do I need that for? And then the day came. And I'm not going to drag you through all of the months and months or however long it really was of what happened. What I'm going to tell you in a general way is that what happened in those ensuing months is that I did anything that a woman needed to get to get anything that a woman needs to get to feed the disease of alcoholism. There was many a time when I didn't have enough money in my pocket to both feed my disease and feed my child, and what I can tell you is my son went hungry many a night. That's the disease of alcoholism. But what I will tell you is the age of miracles is still amongst us. My son and I have a relationship today that is beyond my wildest dreams. My son is so grateful that I am an alcoholic because it gave his mother the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he has been raised with a set of spiritual principles that serves him in the most beautiful, amazing way at this point in his life. So thank you, AA. But that certainly wasn't the mother that I was then. I was off and running, and I was crazy. And I went through all these dark, dark times, and I, you know, those times, most of them, that's why I tell in a general way, are not appropriate to be told from behind a podium. So if there is any woman in here that wants to talk one-on-one, -on -one, I am incredibly open to that. And just see me after the meeting. We'll exchange numbers, and I will tell you all the grit and all the dirt, because it may just save your life. 
But what happened to me was the day eventually came, and I am just so full of guilt, shame, fear, and remorse. I can't even look in a mirror. I can't even stomach myself. I'm going hungry. My son's going hungry. My whole life's out of control. It's just insane. There's nothing I can do about it. And I'm walking through my kitchen, and I see that business card. I was finally in enough pain that was necessary to reach out for help. I picked up the phone. I called Jerry. I said, Jerry, this is Chris, and I think I need some help. And he said, Chris, are you ready to quit drinking? And see, I had been trying to quit drinking for 20 years, and I was unsuccessful. So I was as honest with him as I could be, and I said, Jerry, I don't know if I'm ready to quit drinking, but, man, I'm ready to quit suffering. And thank God that was enough for him. Thank God he understood the disease of alcoholism, and he didn't expect me to have some false bravado then that said, yes, I'll never drink again. See, Jerry knew I couldn't do that. And from that phone call, Jerry 12 stepped me into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you his story. That very night, Jerry was six years away from his last drink. He was sitting in his living room. He had been an amazing potter by trade, had been in a car accident while in sobriety that had crippled both of his hands. He could no longer create his art. He screamed out to the God of his understanding, if this is all there is to sobriety, I might as well drink. Within 30 seconds, the phone rang and I asked him for help. Jerry just celebrated 26 years of continuous sobriety in January. See, that phone call may have had nothing to do with my recovery. It may have had everything to do with his. And that's why when the women that I work with say, I hate to call you and bother you about the little stuff. I know how busy you are. I'm like, bother me. You have no idea what can be going on in this head. See, I have hit that place in recovery while taking up an active seat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Jerry 12 stepped me into my first meeting. I absolutely loved what I saw. One that you were all happy, joyous, and free. It was that there was about 30 people in that room in Little Shockton, Ohio, and they all appeared to be men. I was shopping for my next ex-husband at my first AA meeting. That was how sincere I was. That's why I could care less what brings you in the door, sweetheart. You know, we got something to work with here. So, um, and then I saw her. The one woman in the meeting, she's sitting clear up front. But my keen alcoholic mind instantly sized her up. She appeared to be 112 years old, so I wrote her off as competition. Yes! <laughs> and then it was like some scene out of a movie. It was like the great seas parted. And that little 112-year-old woman sprinted to the back of that room and stuck her hand down and said, Hi, I'm Mary Kay, and I'll be your sponsor. Now, I had no idea what a sponsor was, right? but I want you to like me. That's the most important thing in my life. Somebody said it earlier this week, I'm addicted to approval. As I told you, I'm so afraid to be alone. I know what happens with me. You know, I'm the kind of girl that just goes stark raving crazy when I'm by myself. And so I shook her hand. I'm like, okay. And she starts talking to me about being powerless. And, you know, she was so sweet. I didn't have the heart to tell her, are you nuts? You know, and um, she started talking about being powerless. I'm thinking, no, sweetheart, I've been on the street. And on the streets, if you're powerless, you're weak. And if you're weak, you're prey. And if you're prey, they gotcha. I will never be powerless to anything in my life. She started talking to me about this guy. And like I said, she's so sweet, I didn't have the heart to tell her. Sorry, lady, I don't believe in things I don't see. And then she started talking to me about the program of action. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And I was afraid to say anything to her. And it's just, I had an experience very similar to something I heard Kent talk about. Because I understand now that that would be no different 
than if we would pull, Tina and I would pull out here today and somebody shoots me in a drive-by shooting and plugs a hole in my chest, and I walk into your local ER and cover up this gaping wound in my chest. The triage nurse says, can I help you? And I say, yeah, I got a little scratch here on my chest. And she says, fine, go sit in the waiting room. We'll be with you as soon as we can. And I bleed to death in their waiting room. It's not their fault. I did not tell them the true nature of my wound. And I did the same thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. I took fake it till you make it to an art form. And there is a problem with that. Because you can't live a spiritual way of life based on a lie. Acting as if is a fine thing as long as you're telling somebody the truth. I became a spiritual parasite. And you were my host. Whatever you said about your God, I memorized it, spit it back at you at the next meeting. I was good. I looked good, right? And I'm dying of untreated alcoholism while taking up a seat in your meetings. I'm practicing what I now call buffet AA. I do a little bit of this step, a little bit of that step, just enough to keep you off my back, right? And I'm like this, inside, and all you're seeing is this. Hi, how you doing? Yeah, I'm great. I'm so happy to be sober. This is rocking awesome. I just love it here. And what happens to me is I'm trying to stay sober on the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that doesn't work for an alcoholic of my type. I can get some relief hanging out in the fellowship of AA, but what I need to become happy, joyous, and free, and to recover from the hopeless state of mind and body is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So at four years away from my last drink, I found myself in a position very similar to Jerry's, except for I'm laying on my bedroom floor, I'm wrapped in a purple robe, I'm soaked in my own sweat, and I'm shaking worse than I have ever shook in my life. And I scream out, if this is all there is to sobriety, I might as well drink. And I've got a handgun in my hand, and I'm ready to eat a bullet. That's where my alcoholism takes me, when it's left untreated, sitting in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, taking up a seat. But once again, they did not believe the lie that if you want what we have, you'll come after us. I had been missing from a few meetings. The phone rang, and it was a home group member looking for me. And they said, are you okay? And I finally had enough desperation and humility. She had this instant knowing that came from a place that is far wiser than me. And it was a line from a book I had read years before, Dante's Inferno. And it said, the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who in times of crisis choose to sit on the fence. I had been a fence sitter in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for four years. And I said, yes, I'm dying. I don't know what to do. And they said, we've already got a lady on our way to get you. A woman from an hour away drove her car to come and get me. And she said, we're going to go to a meeting, and you're going to get real, and you're going to get honest. And that's exactly what I did. I finally had the desperation absolutely necessary to become willing to go to any lengths. Walked into this meeting, meeting, shared openly and honestly. She took me back home, took me to my sponsor's house. She said, now you're going to tell her. And I told her everything that was going on in me. And it was a freedom. I began to feel that freedom. wasn't long after that, though, that my sponsor took critically ill, couldn't sponsor me anymore. I was scared to death because you guys had made me employable. I had a job that actually had vacation. So what I do is I took a week's vacation because she told me, you got to find somebody. And at this time, I was in Coshocton, and I drove, and I went, and I spent a week at my dad's house in Columbus, and I would go to meetings because there was no other women in Coshocton that had any length of time in. And any woman that would look my way in a meeting in Columbus, Ohio, I was like the AA octopus. I was like, help me! See, I no longer had that fear of what you were thinking about me. 
I finally was beginning to understand the true nature of my disease, and I was in big trouble. And God put the right people with the right message at the right time in my life. And these women showed me how they started on the title page and they did the program of action, the design for living that I could recover from and be happy, joyous, and free. They showed me exactly what they did. I took that book back home to the my local area and there were three other women that had less time than me that were all dying of untreated alcoholism in the rooms trying to live on the fellowship. I said, these ladies tell me if we do what this book says, we're going to be okay. Now, we were the biggest bucket of sick you ever laid eyes on, right? But we did one thing right. All four of us prayed to a higher power we didn't even believe in before we would get together. And we would get together for two, three, four hours at a time. We opened up that book. We started on the title page. When it asked us a question, we answered it to each other. When it told us to pray, we prayed to a God we didn't believe in. When it told us to write, we wrote. And when it told us to share, we shared with each other. We had no idea what we were doing. But what I can tell you is when willingness and action come together, God's grace literally erupts. That was 16 years ago, and three out of the four of us have maintained continuous sobriety in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so you don't have to do the math. That's a 75% success rate, folks. And I'll tell you what, that is exactly what the forward to the second edition in our big book says. They had a 75% success rate of people that really tried. And that has been my personal experience with working with others, too, is those that have really tried. And that's been something beautiful about this weekend. I have not heard a single speaker talk about staying sober on the fellowship. Every speaker here has talked about how they had to get into the grit and the meat and the program of action. You know, I'd love to tell you that I skipped happy, joyous, and free through my recovery for the last, you know, 16 years, but I think I started out telling you that's not the case, um, even though I do live a life beyond my wildest dreams. But at seven years away from my last drink, I was finding a little bit of a struggle still trying to get this God of my understanding in my life, and what happened to me was one of the biggest gifts wrapped in sorrow I've ever had. Because of all of you, as I said, I became employable, and I had bought my son and I a little tiny house. Now it was an ugly little house. It had red shag carpeting in the living room this thick. You could have murdered somebody, no evidence. Um, had plywood cupboards that had wood grain contact paper on them. Um, and when it rained, we played a little game called, get the bucket! Yeah, and, and so, but it was our house. And at seven years away from my last drink, it burned to the ground due to an electrical fire. I thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to me, and as I said, it was the greatest gift wrapped in sorrow, because what happened is the God of my understanding that I was still trying to get a grasp of led me to a little house out in the country that butted up right against a nature preserve. And see, my family of origin, or my family of sponsorship, they require that you not only read the big book, the 12 and 12, but all conference-approved literature. And I was really having a hard time settling my mind down to sit on a cushion and chant OM, you know, to try and connect with this God. And in one of the books, in Language of the Heart, it talked about how Bill Wilson, who had a mind very much like mine, what he would do, he would do these hiking meditations. And lo and behold, I got dropped right next to 300 acres of hiking, okay? And so that's what I started doing. And I start hiking out in these woods, and I'm not even really hiking, I'm stomping is what I'm doing, because I'm restless, irritable, and discontent in some ways, because I'm still trying to figure out how to undo what it is I did early in recovery, right? Because um, I was self-well run right. So I'm out stomping in these woods, and all of a sudden I hear this. I'm like, oh my God, what is that? What is that? What is that? Because I was raised in the city. I don't know if I thought it was the attacker knocking, and he's letting me know he's there. I'm just not, you know, so I'm walking around, the leaves are crunching under my feet, and I hear I'm like, oh, yeah, what is that? Yeah. And I thought, okay, Chris, you just got to stop. You got to get 
still, you got to get quiet. And they hear this, like, oh my God. And instantly, I had this spiritual awakening. And the spiritual awakening was, it's a woodpecker. <laughs> that doesn't sound so spiritual initially, but let me expand on that. Um, what I had was this instant knowing that I had to get still, and I really just had to try to get quiet if I wanted to know who and what he was, and that this woodpecker was very similar to this God that all of you had been trying to share with me. But see, I'm a good alcoholic, and enough is never enough. So just knowing it's a woodpecker is not enough. I want to see the woodpecker, right? The truth is, I want to pet the woodpecker. If I sponsee say no, Chris, tell the rigorous, honest story. You want to make the woodpecker your pet and just show him to everybody, you know? So I start walking around, and I'm trying to look for this woodpecker, and then all of a sudden I realize he's down in this tree snag, and I'm way too short. There's no way I can see him, and then boom. It happens again that fast. I have another spiritual awakening because what I see is not the woodpecker, but I see all the holes that he has drilled in the tree. And I have an instant knowing that says, see, Chris, that woodpecker is just like this God they've been trying to teach you about. You may not be able to actually see him, but if you just look around, you can see where he's left his mark. And that's what I try and do in every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's why today, when I stand here before you, I keep looking all around the room. Because I was blessed with a gift of desperation at 10 years away from my last drink. And I wound up in a big book workshop in a place called Lake Milton, Ohio, which was where I was introduced to Ed M. that I had told you about in the beginning of the meeting. I'm still searching for a God of my understanding. I'm still hanging on to that. It's coming. I had a, you know, I had the educational variety of spiritual experiences up until that point. So it's coming and it's coming. I'm having a hard time um, in my recovery. They're still trying to undo some of the things that I've done. And this wonderful man guided me to Lake Milton said, I think this guy has what you need. And I went to this big book workshop. It was my first big book workshop ever at 10 years sober. They weren't doing those in my hometown. So I walked into this big book workshop and big Ed M, those of you that know me, he's like seven feet tall. He's up there telling his story. And next thing you know, I see something in his eyes. I see this twinkle, not unlike what Bill Wilson had talked about with Abby. There was something in his eyes. And instantly I have this knowing that that something I'm seeing in him is a living, breathing, tangible God. And I begin to cry because the first time ever, I don't have to believe in things I can't see. Now, I'm not a pretty crier, okay? Within seconds, I got snot bubbles shooting out my nose, okay? I got Alice Cooper makeup running down my face. And my son says, Mom, you're the kind of girl we hate to break up with in public because I'm like a hyena crier. I'm like, <laughs> you know, and I'm just, I mean, it's gorgeous, let me tell you. And so, so Ed finally gets done talking and I go bolting up to him and I said, Ed, I saw God in you. I saw God in you. And he took his giant hands and wrapped them around my little tiny hands and looked me right and deeply in the eyes and he said, sweetheart, the only thing that you see in me is a direct reflection of what already lives in you. And what I can tell you in that moment, I had my first ever spiritual experience. Because that big gaping wound in my chest that I told you about, that dark, that black, that ugly, that hole that I never wanted anybody to see, standing in that moment holding Ed's hands, I 
felt a sensation in my chest and heard an audible sound in my ears that went whoosh, and it closed up. That hole has never opened since. It may begin to open if I step outside the disciplines of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But you see, that's up to me. And from that moment, I was rocketed into that fourth dimension of existence. I came from, I was a spiritual nomad floundering around in your rooms, completely incapable to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was rocketed and became a woman that is more passionate and desires above anything in her life to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to the suffering alcoholic. I have been blessed beyond my wildest dreams since then, and it's not that my life has always been perfect. There was a point in my life where my life looked like a bad country song. You know, within a very short period of time, my dog died, my dad died, I got divorced, and I moved from a beautiful house onto a tiny little single-wide trailer that if you made a pot of coffee and took a shower at the same time, the well quit. I mean, you would think nobody would want what I have, right? But what I can tell you is during that time, I sponsored more women than I ever have up until now. And what that lesson taught me is that if I don't keep all of my dark and ugly covered up and hidden away from you, if I share it with you, my mistakes might just become my lessons. My lessons might just become my experience. And as I heal through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous from that experience, it may just become my strength. And if I share that strength with you, either from behind a podium like this or one-on-one as we're going through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it might just become your hope. And is that not why we're all here this morning, is just for a little bit more hope? It's just not my job to abort the process. See, recovery doesn't make me less human. It just makes me less hopeless. I'm just required to practice these principles in all my affairs and carry this message to other suffering alcoholics. And what I have learned is sometimes the best 12th step I can do is just a good 11th step. Because there are people in this room this morning, I can guarantee you, you're going to reject my suggestions. In fact, there's people that are even going to refuse my love. But what I know for a fact is that you are absolutely defenseless against my prayers. And when I get back home to Ohio tonight and I hit my knees and I do my evening review, it's another reason I look around the room is I will take each and every one of you there with me because the best recovery Chris Campbell has to offer you is when she is one-on-one alone with her creator and sending you everything that this God that I was not willing to believe in can do in your life. And I try and practice these principles in all my affairs, and I'm going to share a quick story, and I'm going to sit down and shut up. And what happened was that little boy that I brought into this world to fix me, it's been a few years ago now. He was 15 years old. I came home from work, and, you know, I've got like a 20-minute window, and a lot of women in here will understand this. I am going to cook dinner, do the laundry, clean the house, and solve all the world's problems before I go do my big book workshop, right? Okay, so I am running through the house like ricochet rabbit, you know, and I hear my 15-year-old behind me, and he goes, Mom, do you mind if I follow you around for a little bit? And I'm like, oh, you know, he doesn't follow me around at 15. He has my Victoria's Secret catalogs hidden in his bedroom. That's what he's doing at 15, okay? Okay? He's not wasting time following mommy around. So I'm like, so instantly this hamster that's in my head that I told you about instantly goes, oh, no, he flunked biology. You knew he was going to flunk biology. And, oh, my God, you are a single mother. There is no way. He has to get that scholarship for college. You cannot 
You can't pay for college. Now he's never going to go to college. And oh my God, he's going to wind up living under the bridge. Oh my God, what are you going to do? No, it's that Jared kid. He was having problems with him at school. Oh my gosh, they have a zero tolerance at school. He hit Jared finally. You don't got to worry about college. He's not even getting out of high school. Oh no, I bet you anything. It's that girl he started seeing. You knew she was going to be trouble. But you know what? Y'all taught me. They don't lock me up for what I think. They lock me up for what I do. So, the only thing my son heard was, yeah, you can follow me around for a minute. That was it, okay? Three minutes later, mom, can I talk to you for a minute? Instantly, the hamster goes, I knew it, she's pregnant! (laughs) He didn't hear that either. He just heard, yeah, sure, what do you need? And I turn around and I see Mr. Macho, as I lovingly called him. He's a junior firefighter at this time. He climbs up on the kitchen counter where all important things are discussed in our house, and he has alligator tears pouring down his face. I said, what's the matter, dude? And he said, Mom, he said, down at the fire department, there's a senior firefighter. His name is Leslie, and he's being deployed to Iraq. It's eaten me up for two reasons. He said, Mom, he's leaving a two-year-old behind. I remember how I felt when my dad pulled out of the driveway. He said, but even more important than that, he said, Mom, the fire department, it's a fellowship. And even though I don't know Leslie very well, I love him because he's a member of my fellowship. And see, Mom, I knew that you were the only one that I know that would understand that. Because I've watched you bringing people into our house my whole life that you barely know. Members of your fellowship, giving them love that just never ends. And I saw Alcoholics Anonymous working in my home right then. And then he said something I hope I never forget. He said, Mom, he said, when you get to your big book workshop, will you please have your friends pray for my friend Leslie? I said, absolutely, buddy. I said, we'll suit up and show up as soon as we get there. And he dropped his head like this and he shook it and he looked right at me. He said, Mom, I don't get it one bit, but you drunks sure seem to have direct connections to God. I could go on for another hour with the miraculous stories that have happened in my life, but I won't. All I will tell you is that I am beyond grateful for the fact that you asked me to have my divine assignment here in Ames, Iowa today. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart that I no longer have to believe in things that I can't see. And it is for that primary reason that I still stand here today unapologetically delighted that you allowed me to be here. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.